Back to our study of this book. Uh, again, you're, you're going to know this by the time we get done. You're gonna, it's going to be engraved in your mind that Titus is a book about being zealous for good works. That's what the church is called to do and to be. For the body of Christ to be enthusiastic and fervent and uh, eager to do good works. So we've been looking at, at, at uh, the kinds of responsibilities, the kinds of practical duties or good works that various individuals uh, or groups of individuals in the church ought to be engaged in. Uh, we'll just read these few verses and then kind of uh, get into the flow here, just pick up in 2-1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible." So these various groups, these we've already talked about, these various groups in the church ought to be engaged or in good deeds or full of good deeds. Uh, as we've pointed out, n- not for the purpose of gaining salvation, certainly not for the purpose of maintaining their salvation, but because they have been saved. So uh, understanding uh, that, that this kind of godly behavior comes from and agrees with, as he says there in one sound doctrine. Uh, This kind of behavior agrees with. It flows out of sound doctrine. So understanding that, uh, understanding that our behavior as Christians, whether it's good and commendable or whether it's bad, will have an impact on those around us. And these things will reflect on the message of the gospel. So in light of that, in light of the fact that, that, that this, this godly conduct and behavior that we've seen in these first six verses that, 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 that Paul is reminding Titus, you've got to instruct the men and speak these things to the men and the women in the church, knowing that agrees with sound doctrine and knowing the impact that our lives have on those around us, Paul says, speak these things. So we've gone through um, these various groups, older men being sound in character, sound in conduct, older women Christian women exhibiting spiritual, uh, respectable behavior, uh, a devotion to the Lord, teaching what is good, modeling a life of service uh, in the church, uh, and then using their life as a platform, as, as an example uh, in the lives of the younger women in the church, training those younger women, wising those younger women up to their responsibilities as ladies, wives, and mothers. To the young Christian women, um, again, Paul doesn't explicitly tell Titus that he himself is supposed to teach the young women this. He says, you're supposed to teach the older women. The older women are to turn around and teach these things to the younger women and train them to do these things, to love their families, love their children, love their husbands, be, be chaste and modest, workers at home, home workers taking care of things at home, managing the home, accepting and following their husband's leadership so that unbelievers, he says, would not look at their lives and then use their poor examples as an excuse to malign and slander the word of God. So again, a part of this is just realizing, folks, what you do in your home is important. I mean, the way you live personally, the way you relate to individuals at work, at home, in the community, 
is, is a big deal. Uh, it's very, very critical to the, the, the work that God has called us to do, especially that work of, of reaching the lost. So we see that direct impact here. He just says, listen, if the younger women are not living in these ways, this is going to reflect poorly on the gospel message, and people are going to uh, slander and, and blaspheme God's word. Uh, then there are the younger Christian men, the young Christian men, Paul tells Titus he's to come alongside of these young men and urge them to be sensible, sound-minded, to be saved in their thinking and wise in their living, pursuing purity, guarding their speech, working diligently, developing and practicing discernment, receiving correction, and walking in a, in a humble manner. And then in verses 7 and 8, Paul sort of, we looked at this last time, he kind of pauses for, for a moment and he, he addresses Titus himself. He addresses Titus as a Christian leader. Uh, as, a, as a preacher of the gospel, as a person that has the responsibility to address false teachers, uh, as one responsible in this particular context, going back to chapter 1, verse 5, to appoint elders in all of these cities, in all of these local churches on the island of Crete, and to, obviously, based on what we have just in this these first six verses of chapter 2, Titus as, as one who is is supposed to be instructing uh, those in the church about their responsibilities and their duties to live godly lives that are consistent with sound doctrine. So Paul says in verse 7, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. So again, he's telling Titus, you've got to teach the older men, you've got to work with the older women so that the older women can, can train up the younger women. You've got to teach and come alongside and urge the young men in the church to live in this way. But then, Titus, you have to be careful because these people are going to be looking at your life. And so don't neglect your life. You're going to have to be an example of these things, an example of good deeds. Literally, in verse 7, it says, Paul tells Titus, you are to hold yourself alongside of as an example. So you're to, you're, you're to open up your life. You're to, you're to live in such a way that those in the church can actually have some sort of access. They can see you in different settings and they can learn what this is all about. So Titus was to be a pattern, uh, a pattern for others in the church to follow. His life was to be a visible expression of his sincere faith in Christ. His life and his example was to be, as we said last week, one of his greatest tools of leadership. That was to be one of his greatest tools of spiritual leadership because example is a very powerful thing. So it, it makes complete sense what Paul does here. He's commanded Titus to teach these different groups in the church how to conduct themselves as Christians, and then he sort of pauses for a moment and says, Titus, you need to show yourself to be an example of good deeds or else this whole endeavor is going to fail. It's going to fail if the person that is supposed to be appointing spiritual leaders in the local church and the person that is supposed to be teaching the people in the church how they're to live, it's going to completely fall apart if the person that's responsible for that is not setting a godly example is not actually living out and fleshing out this, this in their, their own life. Paul just says they won't listen to you. They just simply won't listen. I mean, your, your words will, are not enough. Your words are not enough to do this. You, you have to have a life that backs that up. Uh, they, they won't pay attention. They, they will ultimately begin to look down on you. This was a, a concern uh, Paul had for Timothy, and he said, Timothy, you have to show yourself an example of, of these various things because the reality is you're younger than some of the other people in the church. 
and they're going to look down on you if you're not if you're not living a godly life. They they won't take you seriously. And so, we we uh, mentioned this quote last week by Charles Spurgeon. Bring us back to this. He says, "Quote: A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. In his life." And if his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and will reject his teaching. So in the end, because people consider your actions to be dollars and your words to be pennies, if your words don't line up with your actions, they will throw your words away and they will accept your life. And so you can see how detrimental this would be to, to our, our mission as, as believers and as, as local, local assemblies and, and churches. So Titus was to be an example to all of those within the church, and I'm going to say even outside the church. Uh, and Paul specifically mentions three areas in which he, or we could say you know, by extension, uh, every, really every spiritual leader. Uh, these are three areas in which every spiritual leader ought to be conducting themselves in an exemplary, exemplary way. And the phrases here, he says, are with purity and doctrine, dignified and sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So we sort of unpack this. We said that, you know, for, for a spiritual leader and for, for Titus in particular, Paul's saying that his motives must be pure. He must never do what he does simply for the financial gain that it might bring, never for the influence or the power that comes from the position as a pastor or a teacher, that every spiritual leader has to stand before the people that are under their leadership with integrity. They have to be able to do that. If they don't stand before their people with integrity, then, then their, their, their ministry will ultimately uh, collapse. So their motives must be pure. Their manner must be serious. Again, that doesn't mean that they never joke around, that they never laugh, they never have a good time. But, but especially as a, as a spiritual leader handles the Word of God, Paul says that he must be very careful that he doesn't distract from the message. So he has, to take, he has to take serious subjects seriously, and he has to take his own life and his ministry uh, with, with a seriousness. So his motives, pure, his manner, serious, his matter or the content of his teaching as well as his everyday conversation must be healthy. He must put away lies. He must put away angry speech, impure speech. He must speak the truth in love. His words must be sound, whole, accurate, mature, we say health-producing. That's what this term sound means. It's healthy. So his words must be healthy, health-producing, health-sustaining words, spiritually speaking. And he must do all of these things, must be all of these things, not just for the benefit of the Christians under his care, but also, what does he say, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, Titus's opponents, opponents and Titus's critics were never to have just grounds for charging him with wrongdoing. In fact, he says, they themselves, those opponent, opponents and critics, they themselves were to, be were to be shamed either by their own conduct or in time by the fact that they clearly had no legitimate case. So either in the end, their own conduct, the conduct of these critics, that's shameful and it's revealed, or the accusations that they bring against spiritual leaders and those in the body of Christ, those accusations over time are revealed to, the, there's, there's no foundation to them. And, and then that becomes a shameful 
thing to those who brought those charges. So Paul says Christian leaders are to teach right and they're to live right so that those who oppose the gospel and us will have no room for a credible attack. And we just threw in there, it's interesting, and he says at the end of that verse that they would have nothing bad to say about us, that Paul's not even on the island of Crete anymore. Uh, he, He probably never went back there. And yet Paul says that if you don't live this way, that this is going to hurt us. And he includes himself in that. And I think what he's, what he's simply saying is that, you know what, what we do sometimes, it affects people that we don't realize. And when we have a poor testimony, our poor testimony reflects on other believers. And so other believers are out there and they may be trying to witness, they may be trying to make disciples, and someone that they're trying to influence in that way brings up some excuse that they don't want to believe this or they don't think this is credible because of something that happened to them you know, by the hands of another professing Christian 10 years ago. And so these things affect the people around us in that way. And so Paul just wants, I think, to remind Titus, listen, the way you conduct yourself in this ministry, don't think that it doesn't affect me way over here in these other places which Paul uh, went on and, and ministered. So we've got to keep that in mind. This isn't just about our effectiveness. This is about the effectiveness of other Christians our, our poor conduct can, can reflect on that. So this is the key to evangelism, we said. This is the key to evangelism. It's not self-made, man-made, uh, or plans and programs. Our effectiveness in evangelism comes from genuine virtue, godliness, moral purity, right? The holiness of believers whose lives demonstrate the truth of the word of God and the power of Christ to redeem men from sin. That's, our, that's our greatest, one of our greatest tools as we do evangelism is just the fact that we're living in a way that's consistent with sound doctrine. That is what silences the critics and that is what makes the gospel believable. Now when we get to chapter 2 here in verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul Paul picks back up with another group of individuals in the church, and these are the slaves. So Paul has sort of taken this sort of, there's this parentheses of, you know, teach the older men, older women to teach and train the younger women, teach the young men to be sensible. Oh, by the way, Titus, don't forget, you yourself are to be an example, verses 7 and 8, and then he returns back to this issue of other individuals in the church and what Titus is supposed to be teaching them and speaking to them. So we get to this group in verse 9, and in the New American Standard, it's bond slaves. It's, it's the word uh, doulos. It's a term that Paul actually used sort of metaphorically of himself back in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, where he says, Paul, a bond servant, a doulos of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you have an ESV translation, you'll just see it says slaves, which is probably the best translation. Slaves, uh, the King James Version translates it servants. Uh, New King James trans- translates it bond servants. And we discussed this issue of slavery uh, last year uh, when we were working our way through the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. Uh, so we won't spend a lot of time here uh, but we tried to get up when we were going through Philemon, we tried to get a kind of a handle on this whole issue of slavery because that entire letter re- revolves around that issue. Um, but just some of the things that we pointed out, uh, slavery, you know, in the in the first century, it was it was very deeply 
uh, embedded in the, in the structures of, of Greco-Roman society. Uh, all well-to-do people had slaves. Uh, very wealthy people may have had over 100 or more, sometimes 200, 300 slaves. Uh, slaves were a key part of Roman society and the economy in the first century. Uh, and slaves were really regarded as essential, um, especially as domestic servants and farm laborers. So it's not what we think of when we hear, when we hear the term slaves and masters. We, have, we, we typically, as Christians in, in America, we kind of run that through our own experience with slavery and our own culture. And it's just not the same. There are clearly some, some similarities. There were, there were abuses of this in the Roman Empire, um, but it's, uh, it's not exactly like, it, like what we experienced in our own history. And so just be careful anytime you're in the New Testament and you, and you come across this issue, just do some research on it because it's, you, you've got to realize what's kind of going on you know, in, in society, Roman society and culture. Uh, again, there are, are some similarities, but there's, there are many differences. Uh, certainly some slaves found themselves in very poor conditions, um, very miserable conditions, uh, but many others found themselves uh, in, in what we would might call apprentice or uh, indentured relationships. Uh, depending on the training and depending on their uh, abilities or skills, a slave might serve as a tutor. Uh, they might serve as a clerk, a craftsman, a soldier, even a doctor. Uh, so some, sometimes there were actually servants and slaves in households in which the servant or slave was more educated and more skilled than the master. Uh, so a little bit, little bit different than what we might think. Uh, many of these slaves actually were uh, managers of the household uh, or of the master's family business. And so a lot of them had, they had a, lot of, a lot of freedom. Some of them had a lot of responsibility. I mean, the master would say, you're in charge of all of these things. And there was a lot of freedom and latitude in that. Um, it is believed that there were more than 50 million of these in the Roman Empire at the time. So in the city of Rome alone, a third of the population of the city of Rome was, were slaves. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a, a massive number. Consequently, to dismantle slavery all at once would have brought complete collapse of the, of the empire, uh, of the society, really. It would have completely come unraveled if all the slaves decided... We're all getting out of here, and we're revolting. There was just such a massive number of them. Uh, not only that, but any signs of a slave revolt were put down with ruthless brutality. So, if there was a, you know, if there was a hint of of revolution stirring, those were dealt with pretty swiftly. Uh, and and then, really, the main thing is that I think in the context here, and really the context of the first century and in, in, in the church in the first century. As far as the gospel was concerned, a revolt on the part of Christian slaves would have definitely confused the gospel message. It would have brought confusion to the gospel. H.D.M. Uh, uh, Spence says this. He says, Among the difficulties which Christianity had to surmount in its early years was the hard task of persuading the slave that the divine master who promised him a home among the many mansions of his father, meant not that the existing relations of society should then be changed or its complex framework disturbed. But that was one of the greatest challenges is to, is to realize that the best thing right now is for this, this framework in society to just continue. 
because if there's this massive upheaval in society, then people would tie the gospel message to that and just say, well, these, these Christians are all rebels. I mean, they, don't, they, just, they just want to do their own thing. They don't want to submit to anyone. And so the church was very careful in how they, how they handled this. I think you know, what we see over time, over, over several centuries, is that as the Christian message sort of infiltrated uh, the, 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 you know, in a broad way the Roman Empire, that some of these social structures did begin to sort of collapse and fall apart. But it was very critical for the early church to, to keep these distinctions so that people weren't confused about the message of Christ. So it's interesting what Paul does here. He doesn't address the condition of slavery, uh, and he doesn't offer any judgment about its basic fairness or morality. He simply recognizes that slavery exists and deals with primarily the attitudes uh, that Christian slaves should have toward their masters. That's the issue. He's just saying, listen, this exists. Let's just deal with it. If you're a slave, don't try necessarily to get out of that condition. I want to talk to you about how you should be living in that condition. Uh, because every one of us would admit that, when, that, that we, uh, what most people want when they're in difficult circumstances is they want relief. They want to get out. I mean, they want a different set of circumstances. Paul's consistent drumbeat was stop asking for and stop uh, lusting for another circumstance, a different set of circumstances, a different situation. You need to learn how to honor God and please God in the circumstances that you're in. So that was really the emphasis of what, what Paul does. He does it in, in every, every time he really addresses this issue in the New Testament. Uh, now, as we think about what Paul says here and in other passages about slavery in the New Testament, uh, it's helpful to keep in mind that the slave-master relationships and responsibilities are dealt with much as those of employee or employer relationships. You'll see a lot of, a lot of commentators will kind of make this connection because what they're trying to do is to say that they're trying to get you to break a little bit away from, again, that sort of Western mindset of slavery. And they're saying, listen, that a lot of these slaves and servants in the first century, again, were functioned more like an employee. I mean, there were, there were clearly obligations um, involved, and there were expectations that if you were a servant and a slave, that you were to be doing, <laughs> you were to be taking orders. I mean, there's a reason you're called a slave and a servant. You were to be taking orders from your master, but again... Uh, there was a lot of freedom in some of these positions. And so we try to make that application because if we, if we don't, if we don't point that out, then people kind of walk through these passages and just say, well, I'm not a slave. I mean, I, I would never do that. I'd never be in that position. But it, 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 from a practical standpoint, anybody that works a job, you're living in this kind of dynamic. So we just need to keep that sort of in the back of our mind. Now, there's, there's lots of application here and implications for us. So with that, I just want to take a poll. How many, uh, how many of you in, in the room work for someone else? How many of you work for someone else? Uh, in other words, you work a job, but you are not self-employed, okay? Now you have, you have a, you're working for a company, a boss. Stand up. Stand up. We'll just do it that way. That way you're not doing this. I see that hand. I see that hand. You know, we'll have revival service here. I can claim 50 people raise their hands. Okay, so these are all the people that work for someone else. Now, just curious. Just curious, how many of you work for a professing Christian? All right, don't just stay put. How many of you work for a professing Christian? Your supervisor, your boss, uh, the person that you answer to directly. 
if they uh, profess to be a Christian, I want you to stay standing and everybody else sit down. If you work for a professing Christian boss, supervisor, okay, all right, you can take a seat. That's a, that's a big number. That's a big number. All right, so just, again, we're going to... Now you need to ask how many of those... Do you, are, are, yeah, we're getting there, Tim, we're getting there. <laughs> we're going to have a survey on the way out today. And if you work for somebody in this room, because we have a lot of guys in the church that work for other guys in the church. Uh, we have some business owners in our church. Most of them called me this week and said, hey, I heard your teaching on um, servants and masters. Can I give you some illustrations? Can I give you some help, uh, input, you know, specific things that you might want to say as you're teaching this? <laughs> so kind of just kind of keeping that application to the Christian in the workplace in mind, let's, let's look at what Paul has to say here, okay? What is it that Paul reminds Titus to do? Verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, uh, in the original text, the, there, there's not a finite verb, a verb in verse 9. So the, the word urge, some of your translations have that. Uh, the word urge is not, in the, is not in the text. It's not in this verse, I should say. Uh, that imperative urge is kind of supplied in your translation because this verse most likely connects back to verse 6 uh, where the verb urge or exhort is used. So Paul charges Titus to urge those who are Christian slaves to do two main things. Okay, there's two, there's two infinitives uh, and the two main things that, that uh, Paul uh, talks to, to uh, Titus about and brings to the t- attention of Titus here, uh, two, th- two things that Christians, Christian slaves are to do. And the first one is that they are to be subject to their masters. Subject to the masters. The second one is that they are to be pleasing to God. Subject to the masters, pleasing to God. We'll, we'll unpack these. Uh, verse 9, subject to their masters, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. So this, Paul says, agrees with and flows out of sound doctrine. That slaves that have been liberated from their sins by grace through faith in Jesus would willingly submit to their earthly masters. Okay? So they've experienced spiritual freedom spiritual liberty, but because of that, the kind of life that agrees with that truth and that principle and that teaching and that doctrine is that a Christian will subject themselves. They will willingly submit their their lives, submit themselves to their earthly masters, that they would be subject. And this is our term, hypotasso, which we've uh, already seen in this chapter, they're to be subject to their own masters. The word is despotes, uh, or their earthly lords, uh, their, their, their bosses, their, their rulers. We get our term despot for that. Uh, we've already, as I said, seen this term uh, hupotasso, this word for subject. Uh, we saw that back in chapter 2, verse 5, regarding the younger wives who were to be subject to their own husbands, same word, okay? 
So in the way that wives are to be subject to their own husbands, servants, slaves are to be subject to their own masters. Uh, this term, hupotasso, it, it simply is, is a combination of two words. Uh, one means under, the other means to order or, or appoint, so it means to arrange under. So it's a, it's a military term, again, we've already looked at this, it's a military word that described the ranks of soldiers arranging themselves under the leadership of their commander. So there's a commander in the military. Tim Tarchik probably gets this. He's a retired Air Force. Uh, he understands this, that, that this is what, I mean, it's all about, right, Tim? I mean, this is all about arrangement. It's all about chain of command. It's all about order. It's mission. This is the mission. How are we going to get it done? And everybody to get the mission done has got to do their part. Not anything less, not anything more. You take your description, your job description, and you do it, and you do it well. And if you do that and everybody else does this, this thing will work, most likely. So we're to be arranging ourselves under a per- someone else's leadership. That's the idea here. Uh, here, as it is in verse 5, when it mentions the wives, it's again, once again in the middle voice, which shows that this submission is a voluntary personal choice. You're not being forced to submit. So husbands, that we mentioned this back in verse 5, it's not husbands preaching to their wives, submit to me. It's not a, a husband's role to tell their wives to do that. It's a wife's, Christian wife's role to willfully, in their own heart and own mind, personally subject themselves. They, they're the ones responsible to do that. So it's voluntary, it's a personal choice, and it's in the present tense here, which reveals that this is an abiding attitude. It's not a, it's not a periodic thing. It's something that just an attitude that should continue. It's a, it's a submissive attitude that leads to submissive life and decisions and choices. So these Christian slaves were to voluntarily fall in line and submit to their masters. And not just in some matters, but what does he say? In what? Everything. In everything. Of course, this phrase in everything is, is not without qualifications. Obviously, a Christian slave would never put their master in the place of Jesus. That's not his place. He would certainly not want to follow his master into sin. So if, let's just say in the workplace, a, a, a boss or a supervisor that works that you work for, you work under them, they ask you to sin. They want you to lie for them. They want you to do something that's, that's unethical, that's immoral. You just have to draw the line and say, listen, I, I, I want to have a submissive heart. I want to do what you want me to do, but I can't do that. I can't violate the, the Word of God. That's where you have to draw the line. That's where the, New, that's where the early church drew the line. What you see in the book of Acts is the church doing everything they could possibly do to be submissive to the Roman Empire, but just not sin. In fact, you could almost view the book of Acts as a sort of a court document. Some people have looked at the book of Acts in this way. That is, Paul was in, you know how the book of Acts ends, right? book of Acts ends that Paul's awaiting what? He's awaiting trial. Luke had traveled with Paul, and Luke had written the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote this second volume, the book of Acts. Many people believe that the whole purpose of the book of Acts was to actually outline the ways in which the early church submitted to the existing governing authorities. And that Paul was not the one that was stirring up all the trouble. Who was the one stirring up all the trouble in the book of Acts? 
Everywhere that they went, there was always trouble. There was always fighting. There was always, always an uprising. But who were the ones creating it? The Jews. The Judaizers. I mean, the whole book of Acts is a testimony to that. That it was the, 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 the Judaizers that were pursuing people in the church, the Christians, and they were the ones that were causing all the upheaval. They would get the big riot started, and then they would blame it on the Christians. But Luke meticulously develops this theme throughout the book that that's not what took that that's that's what took place, and that it wasn't the church that was guilty of these things, but it was that those Jews that created a lot of the problems. So, the church drew that line early on. You know, at times they said, "We we will do this, but we have to." In the end, we must obey God and not men. I mean, if if you're going to put us in a position where we have to choose, are we going to obey what God's word has to say, or are we going to sin? We're going to have to just say no to sin. We have to follow Christ. So this phrase, in everything, has to be restricted to things that are right. Uh, Slaves must only do what is in line with God's revealed will. But Paul's point is that slaves are not supposed to pick and choose when they want to submit. That's the issue, is that we shouldn't just be willy-nilly about when we want to submit. I mean, if you're under an authority, if if you're in the workplace, you don't just pick and choose when you want to submit. You go into that thing wanting to submit. I mean, that's your disposition to say, I want to submit. And if you're not asking me to sin, then I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. I mean, because that's the attitude. That's the attitude that I have. It's not a rebel heart. It's a heart that says, I've been changed by Christ. And I understand this authority thing. And I'm supposed to be humble. And I'm supposed to listen. I mean, that's what we talked about, being sensible, right? All those young men being sensible. It's listening. It's being humble. It's receiving correction. So in the workplace or anytime you're in that kind of social environment and you're under authority, that should be your heart as a believer. So we know, we know that there is nothing more counter to to man's natural disposition than submission. I mean, it just goes against our natural disposition. But this is what God requires. This is what Christian slaves must do. They must strive to submit to those that have authority over them, whether those over them are followers of Christ or not. That's, that's what they're called to do. Yes? Is it, well, is it right and maybe helpful to, to kind of... I know that a lot of it is the employee-employer relationship, but I keep thinking about back in that time and then our time, what may be a more complete picture of what it was then is we all have employers. We also have banks and mortgage companies. We have utility companies. We have grocery, grocer. All that today is very fragmented, but in many of those cases, there is a relationship of indebtedness. We, we may like to say we own our home, but the fact is that bank owns the home, and we are indebted to that bank to retain that home until we have paid off that debt, at which point that transfer takes place. And in my mind, that, that back in that time you're talking about, the master was really the provider of almost all of that for your family, your home, your work, your food. Yeah, everything was kind of underneath that master. Uh, and we had that responsibility of, of indebtedness there to, to pay that just as we do now across all these different relationships that we have that are very similar, but then we're all under one person. And we know that as time has gone on, masters began to sell those 
in debt, those debts off, and they landed in the hands of very wicked people, and it really became that system. But to me, that, that helps me see more. And that's when the IRS was born. <laughs> Do any of y'all have an attitude against the IRS? Well, I'm just saying, I, have, I know people that under the name of Christ have said, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not paying my taxes. There was a guy I went to church with over in Birmingham that just put his foot down. I'm not going to do that anymore. Shame. Shame on you. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the heart of the believer to say, it, and like you said, it, it's going to look differently from society. Even our culture compared to what it would be, say, in Europe or you go to Kenya. I mean, you go to different places. It's going to look very different in these societies, but the general framework is there. It was much more tied to the home, the household situation in the Roman Empire. And like you said, we're much more transient where it's much, it looks a lot different, especially in our culture. But the basic structures are still there. And the heart of the believer is not to cast off those restraints, not to say, I don't have to answer to anybody. It's to realize everybody answers to somebody. I mean, everybody's under authority. So get used to it and, and figure out how to glorify God as you are in that particular station in life in that position don't get an attitude towards your utility company pay your bills don't get angry at, at, at the bank don't get angry with these political and these governmental institutions you may not like what they do but that doesn't mean that you should have that rebellious heart just say we would be better off if we had none of that it's just not not the heart of a, of, of a, of a heart it's not the heart of a, of a christian whose life has been transformed and changed by the gospel right, let's keep moving here Next, Paul says Christian slaves must also be pleasing to God. Okay? Pleasing to God. Now, the text doesn't specifically indicate if slaves are to be well-pleasing to their masters or to God. So it doesn't really say specifically to whom they're to be well-pleasing. In fact, some of yours might just have that just says well-pleasing. It doesn't say well-pleasing to any particular person. Some of those translations do supply some, uh, one of the two there, either God or to masters. Uh, but the, what we do know is that the term that Paul uses here, in every other New Testament usage, this term is used to speak of men's relationship to God. It is never used in the New Testament to describe a relationship between two people. For example, Roman, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, that's the word, well-pleasing, to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And you would see that in, in every, every other reference you would go to. Acceptable to God, pleasing to the Lord, well-pleasing in His sight, speaking of God's sight, in His presence. This is what will keep our subjection from being accompanied by sullenness and gloom. In other words, the, the idea here is that you could be outwardly subjective outwardly submissive, but inwardly, you could have a bad attitude. So there's this balancing thing here that Paul's saying. He said, you need to subject yourself to your masters, but then you also need to be well-pleasing to God, pleasing to God. You need, you need to not be you know, all down in the mouth and gloomy about this. So Paul says, listen, we can voluntarily submit with the right heart attitude. We can voluntarily submit with joy and with contentment. Why? Because our ultimate goal in the end is to please the Lord. 
That's why we can do it with joy. It's because of Him. Uh, we, we aim at excellence because of Him. We, we do our best because of Him. We will most gladly spend and be expended because of Him. That's why we do what we do. I mean, that's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. My ambition, my goal, my aim in life is to what? To be pleasing to the Lord. Whether I'm home or absent, my goal is, to, is ministry is to be pleasing to the Lord. It's the same word, acceptable, the same Greek word. I want to be well-pleasing. I want to be acceptable to Him in all things. Now, what specifically does that look like? To be pleasing to God as a slave, as a slave, as maybe an employee or one of those other, uh, in, a, in some of those other contexts. Well, this phrase, to be well-pleasing, is followed up by three participles, the sort of a string of participles which describe more fully what it means for a slave to be well-pleasing to God. Christian slaves, Christian employees, Christian contractors are to be pleasing to the Lord by being three things. The first one is they're to be agreeable. Agreeable. Paul says they are not to be argumentative. Not to be argumentative. Ante lego. All right? Ante against lego speak. Same term we saw back in one nine, holding fast, speaking of elders. They are to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the term. Those who speak against. It refers to those who speak against something or someone else. They're always taking the opposite side and they always have something to say about it. Right? This is what some slaves were guilty of. They were guilty of arguing or disputing the master's commands. They were guilty of, we say, talking back. Right? Don't you talk back to me. You know, it's that, it's that speak against. Saying, Don't you speak against me. That's what these slaves were doing. They were guilty of doing this, talking back, believing that God had called them to be a contrarian. Always going against current practice, offering up verbal challenges, making sarcastic comments made under their breath, being defiant and belligerent and combative in their words and in their actions, thwarting in some cases their master's desires or their boss's wishes or their company's policies. Always got to go against it. That is not godliness. That is sin. That's sinful. That is arrogance. That is self being self-willed. So if you want to be pleasing to God, then you do all that you can to be agreeable, to be peaceable, to be compliant. Just being different and going against the flow is not virtuous. That's not virtuous. Being like Christ is virtuous. And believe it or not, there were many times when Jesus honored social customs. And there were many times when Jesus recognized human authorities. And there were many times that Jesus decided to be silent rather than to speak. So you don't always have to oppose everything. You don't always have to voice your opinion. You don't always have to go against what everybody else is saying. We could learn from Jesus' example here. So again, if your boss tells you to do something and it doesn't violate God's word, just do it. Just stop speaking against it. Strive to be agreeable. Secondly, Paul t- says that Christian slaves and by extension employees are to be pleasing to the Lord by being trustworthy. By being trustworthy. Paul tells Titus to urge Christian slaves, no pilfering. No pilfering. 
all right? Nophizo, it's, it, it's the word nosphizo. It's, it's a word to mean, that means to abandon or to set apart. Uh, or, or we'd say to keep back, uh, to keep a portion apart for yourself. <laughs> the only other time we see this word in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 5 in reference to Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? But a, a man named Ananias, 5-1, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion, a portion of it, he laid it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why, is your, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of his land? It's a serious issue. That, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. It's, about, talking about, it's, it's basically stealing, <laughs> holding back for yourself, setting it aside for yourself. The thing is, it's not yours. It's not yours to set it aside for yourself. It belongs to your master. That's the idea is that you're a slave of this master, but you're taking things and you're setting them to the side to use for yourself. And you're not supposed to do that. It's the usual word in the New Testament for just petty theft. Of course, this is a practice very common, uh, very common vice among the slaves of that day. There were certainly an abundance of opportunities to engage in it. Oftentimes, slaves would have the chance to misappropriate food or misappropriate uh, a jewelry or money or other valuables entrusted into their care by their masters. The masters would say, again, listen, you got a lot of liberty. I have all these things, and I want you to manage and take care of these things. And then that person would take advantage of that freedom, and they would begin to set things aside for their own personal use. That's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, does this happen today? Absolutely, it happens today. Mike, have you lost a few pins over Cherokee Christian? No. Not any, yeah. You just look at it as advertisement, right? If people walk out with a pen, it's got the school's name on it. You can have it. It's got the school's name on it. That's right. That's right. Go through a metal detector. Uh, so what does this look like in modern times, particularly in the workplace? Submitting inflated timesheets, right? I mean, we do pilfering, stealing, lying about why you relate to the office, Okay. You had four flat tires in the last three months. Amazing. I mean, it's just amazing how many flat tires people begin to lose track. You know, they forget how many tires they had flat, that went flat on them this year. Fudging on expense reports, taking office supplies home for personal use, taking unauthorized trips in the company car, surfing the web, surfing the web, checking Facebook on company time. According to a survey by Salary.com and American Online, the average American worker wastes just over two hours of an eight-hour workday on non-work activity. Two of eight. Nearly 45% of that time is spent surfing the Internet almost an hour per day per person. In 2010, government officials in the state of Vermont decided to take a look into how much productivity was being lost by state employees surfing the web during work hours and installed a new web monitoring program on state computers. The state human resources office reported its employees were squandering the equivalent of 57 full-time positions every week. Almost 120,000 employee work hours over the course of 12 months. Some have estimated that social media usage is costing the American economy $650 billion a year. Billion. More than the value of Google, Chevron, and Chase Manhattan combined. Facebook. All right, I'm done.
<laughs> I don't have it, you know. It's, it's, I'm godly. No, no, I'm, just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You don't need technology to squander time. That's for sure. What about you? Those of you who work for a company, are you robbing your employer? Are you hurting them financially? Are you pilfering? Are you taking shortcuts? Are you damaging your testimony? Paul says Christian slaves are not to be embezzling. They are to be honest. They are to be looking out for their masters. They are to be utterly dependable even when they are not being watched and monitored by their masters. They are to be reliable. They are not to be takers. They are to be trustworthy. All right, we'll finish up this third one and stop for the day. Third way that Paul says Christian slaves are to be pleasing to the Lord is by them being beneficial. But, he says, showing all good faith. The word showing here is a term that means to indicate by word or act. It's, it's a word that means to prove, to bring forth evidence, to demonstrate, showing all good faith. And this, this interesting phrase, it's actually not found anywhere in the New, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's, uh, there's, uh, there, it's all over the map as to what this means. Um, the word, of course, for faith uh, is pistis, most likely refers here to the idea of fidelity or faithfulness. The word good, we've seen this in other, it's, this is a term that comes up in, in the book of Titus. Uh, agathos it can simply mean good or kind, but it can also speak of being useful for a purpose. In other words, slaves are to be doing that which is good, showing themselves to be completely faithful in goodness showing themselves to be loyal, looking for opportunities to be kind, looking for opportunities to be useful and productive. Or you say this, they are not to be a liability to their masters. They are not to be a liability to their bosses and their companies. They are to be an asset. You know what that means? That means that the most dependable and the most respectful employee the most submissive employee, the most understanding employee, the most effective peacemaker in, the, in, in a conflict in the workplace, the most merciful, the most uh, kind, the most truthful, the most humble, the most forgiving, the most patient employee ought to be the Christian employee. Unfortunately, it's often the Christian employee that expects his wishes to be fulfilled. It's often the Christian employee that that expects his efforts to be recognized. It's often the Christian employee who, is, who complains the most. It's often the Christian employee who is the most abrasive in the way that they relate to people and, and talk to people. It is often the Christian employee who, who excuses his laziness and lack of discipline who is insensitive to the needs or preferences of others, who is unconcerned about the sufferings of other people, who struggles the most with being subordinate to those in authority. It's often the Christian one. It's often the Christian employee, the professing Christian in the workplace that is the one that seemingly struggles the most with being submissive to authority. Paul would say something is, something's wrong with that. Something's wrong. If that's the case, you've got to go back to the heart and you've got to go back to the issue of sound doctrine, sound thinking. Something's not right. So there's a disconnect, major disconnect. That kind of life, that kind of testimony does not line up with sound doctrine. And it's killing the witness of the church.
killing it. I mean, think about the, all, all of you just stood up that were working. I mean, is this not a massive opportunity for evangelism? But it's killing us. It's killing us. It's killing the church's efforts in evangelism. For all of you who just stood up earlier that say, I work in the world, it's killing us that some of you are going into the workplace and you are not living a life that is consistent with sound doctrine. It's hurting the gospel. It's diminishing the brilliance of the gospel and the power of the gospel. So, with that, we'll, we'll pause and we'll come back next time. And what we're going to look at when we come back next week, we're going to look at the issue of motives and motivations because that's where Paul goes next. He gives us a purpose clause and he says, slaves are to act this way. They're to, to be submissive to their masters and they're, they're to be pleasing to God and pleasing to God in these kinds of ways. They're to be agreeable and they're to be trustworthy and they're to be beneficial so that, and he tells us why, and what that's meant to do, I think, is to serve as a motivation. Is to say, if we're servants, if we're slaves, if we're in this kind of relationship with other institutions or individuals in our life, we need to be living the way Paul's talking about here because there's, there's a reason behind it, a good reason behind it. And we need to allow that purpose to be something that motivates us and drives us to pursue this. So we'll come back and we'll not only look at this particular passage, but we're going to go to every other passage in the New Testament that deals with slaves. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, 1 Peter 2, and this one in, second, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Titus. And we're going to pull together six or seven motivations for slaves to be this kind of slave, to be this kind of Christian, and why that motivation and those motivations that the Scriptures give us are so critical and so important and how they relate to our efforts in, in sharing the gospel. Okay, And then, the week after that, it's going to be awesome. We'll get to verse 11, and we'll talk about the basis for every bit of this. The basis for all of this living and all of this behavior and all these actions and all these relationships and all this submission. Why? Because of the mercy of God and God's grace. The gospel itself. And uh, we'll have a great, great time together looking at those verses at the end of chapter 2. All right, time for one final comment. Any, Any comments? Oh, who said that? Who over here? Go ahead. Why do you think um, so often the professing Christian employee that that has all these, these issues uh, you mentioned them often being the most argumentative, having the most? It could be immaturity. I mean, it could be just a lack of teaching. It could be a, it could be an issue with just their ability to understand their purpose. I mean, they, they could be under this illusion that, again, I think that was the possibility in the first century is that slaves in their mind thought, but I'm a Christian now. I'm free in Christ because, right, I mean, there is no, in Christ, there is no slave or free. So they could have had this sort of over-realized understanding of, of ecclesiology and thinking, are we all just supposed to get along with no authority here because there is no male, female, there is no slave and free. And so it could just be that there's just some lack of teaching. They don't understand these things. And, but, you know, hey, I mean, why did the Corinthian church continue to struggle after Paul had spent so much time teaching them? Well, he gives us that answer in 1 Corinthians 3, and he just says it's selfish ambition and pride. The people in the church, true believers, 
are still struggling day in and day out with selfish lust, selfish ambition, and pride in their life. Which is why there's so many charges and commands in the New Testament to put that off. You gotta you gotta die. You gotta deny yourself. You gotta put that stuff to, to death. You gotta kill it. You gotta kill selfish ambition and pride. And you gotta put on these things because it's not natural. It's not natural to do this. And so sometimes I think it's just a misunderstanding of even sanctification. How do we grow? How do we get beyond some of these things? And a lot of Christians are just spinning their wheels because they think that if they have their quiet time at 6 a.m. in the morning and they read my utmost for his highest and they pray for 10 minutes, they're not supposed to struggle with this stuff. And I'm saying that is not sanctification. It's good. I'm glad you're praying and I'm glad you're reading your Bible, but there's a whole lot more to the Christian life than having a devotion. I mean, there, there are things you must do in your thinking and in your living. And I don't think Christian, I think we have a very simplified form of Christian growth that's just, if I check this box and check that, that box, I'm supposed to be growing as a believer. Not necessarily true. Not necessarily true. 